Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, how smart is Vladimir Putin and is he the new superpower? With midterm elections now nine months away, how important is the cycle for both Dems and Republicans? Can Obamacare really succeed with the numbers coming out recently? And the report on the Navy Yard shooting shows the government dropped the ball. Could this and should this have been prevented? This and tell me a story today, live from Washington on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Get out there, out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, live on Black Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left here at the table, he is the former HR member of Congress, representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock here at the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And to my right, ironically, she is the former general counsel for the Maritime Administration, an Obama appointee, and former counsel to the Homeland Security Committee in the House under Benny Thompson. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is longtime Washington insider. He is a uh, former chairman of the, or former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. Well, it's been a slow news cycle this past week. I got to tell you something, we were struggling to try and come up with topics. But because we love the audience so much, We've got some. We got a great show lined up for you today. The first topic, obviously, that every. So we're going to spend a half hour talking about snow. No, we're not talking about snow. Contrary to what you, it's done. It's done. If you talk to anybody at the National Weather Service, they swear that the snow is done. This is just not not a thing we need to worry about. Employees. Yes, they are. They well. Bob Hines, you used to be one. Carl Tubin. Beware. The, the, okay, the this biggest is, snow that we've had has come at the end of the I, Okay, March. really, I don't want to start off this way. I've already lost control, and it's like 10 seconds. Beware the Really? We're starting off this way? No, no, no. What I really want to start off with is, okay, so over the weekend, in case you've been living under a rock because everybody's been covering it, uh, and it's not a Malaysian airliner that's missing. We'll talk about that later. But uh, in case you missed it, the uh, the folks in the Crimea region of the Ukraine voted to secede from the Ukraine and, in fact, be integrated into the Russian Federation, which means they're going to be part of Vladimir Putin's entourage. Uh, however, that sparked several, several uh, comments coming out of both 
Washington, D.C., as well as our allies in London, uh, Berlin, and, uh, and Paris. But you've got to ask the question. And, uh, Denise Krepp, I'm going to start with you as... Uh, one of now the Democrats have a majority of the table this week. Yes, uh, Denise. The, the quick question I have is, by God, I'm here. <laughs> I got your back on this one. When you know we we've been looking at Vladimir Putin and seeing everything going down with Vladimir Putin, we've heard him called. Uh, you know, we've heard what he's done be called illegal. We've heard what he's done as a violation of of, of nation sovereignty. But the, the one thing nobody's called him is stupid. How smart is Vladimir Putin right now? Wow. Um, that's a good question. I mean, it'll kind of relate to can he bring in the Crimea and can he make it work? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think you have a lot of people in Kiev right now that are saying, no, this shouldn't have happened. It's illegal. And you have a lot of people remembering 1939 and Poland and saying, hey, wait a second, you guys should have come in in 1939. You had a 1994 agreement that you said that you would oh, back us up. You're not anywhere near our back right now. And you're going to have a lot of people looking at the United States and the European Union and say, where are you? And that's what's going to you know, link to how successful Putin is going to be, is what's going to happen, what is the United States going to do, what's the European Union going to do, and how are they going to um, put pressure on Putin? Bob Hines, I mean, you know, when we look at this, from a global perspective, you know, monster, but is he stupid? Is, or is this a smart move for Vladimir Putin in the eyes of the global community? Well, he was smart enough, or he is smart enough, to realize that the Western allies have so many economic ties with Russia that they are reluctant to uh, take him on. If they were willing to do so, uh, the Russian Federation might very well collapse itself because if, if it wasn't for their oil selling to Europe, they wouldn't have any, any money at all. They are in very tough shape right now. But you still have 1939 and people are going to say, well, Poland fell and then others fell and are we about to see a reason? Remember, Czechoslovakia and Germany were both invaded too. Yeah, well, I mean, but, you know, we bring up, we bring up a good case. You know, let's be honest, Congress for now, you've got a situation where you have a, a nearly valueless ruble You've got a Russian economy that's in, in shambles, to say the best case scenario. We also, look at, we, we also look at the fact that, quite frankly, there's a lot of nationalism that reminds us of Soviet bloc uh, mentality. It, it almost seems like the, Russian, the Russians, and in particular Vladimir Putin and his entourage, don't care. Well, I would rather... I'd criticize his intelligence, I would like to criticize, I would rather criticize his wisdom. Uh, I think uh, he's obviously a very bright man. So was Joseph Stalin, so was Nikita Khrushchev, uh, and they behaved this way. This is kind of a Russian-style, heavy-handed, uh, to hell with you, in your face kind of, a, of an action. Uh, and, uh, and I think he knows what he's doing, uh, but uh, this ain't Russia when Stalin was there, and it's not the Khrushchev era either. A lot has changed, and I doubt if he can get away with it if, uh, if the West has any uh, backbone at all. Carl Tubin? <laughs> well, you know, in the first term, uh, there were significant gains in the relationship between 
the United States and, uh, and Russia. Uh, in the second term, or before the second term, when the president whispered to, to the former president of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, let's wait, uh, I'll have more to deal with uh, when, uh, when I win the second term. Uh, uh, I think that at this point, the United States is doing what it can do with the European Union in putting the, um, the sanctions, uh, and there will be more sanctions, I believe, if, if, they, if these sanctions don't work. And I think Europe is, uh, is, is, especially Germany, is ticked off, and there's no love between the Germans and the Russians. We know that. Um, people have said, uh, Senator McCain has said, well, why don't we arm the, uh, send arms and trade into the Ukraine? Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that's, that would be uh, uh, liked by in this country. Well, I, I mean, I mean, look, I, I mean, you have to admit, Bob, you and I were talking earlier uh, before the show about the, the 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 condition of not just the view of the Russian president Vladimir Putin in the global community, but we're also looking at it from the view of how Obama is viewed in the international community. You and I talked about it earlier. I made the comment. If George W. Bush is president, or even Bill Clinton is president, this doesn't happen under their watch. What makes Obama different? Well, maybe that's possibly so. Maybe your point is sort of possibly right or not, or the circumstances possibly. But we have a situation today where it is true that the, uh, the West, if you will, is not led by strong people, generally speaking. I think that's true of the United States. I think it's true of Britain. I think it's true. It is uh, it's true of France. Italy is uh, is nothing to disasters. It always is. Uh, the, the strongest uh, country in Europe is, is clearly Germany, and they are Russia's number three or four uh, trading partners. They are very big, and they're they're just not willing to uh, to lose that business. Uh, and they'd rather let the Russians do what they want to do as long as they don't grab anything in Germany. Denise Krupp, you're kind of nodding your head a little well, I, bit. I guess I'm, I'm troubled by the analogy because the difference between a Bush and a Clinton presidency is the fact that we've been at war now for 12 years. I mean, we have some very tired men and women. Not only are we very tired men and women, we have a budget that escalated because we did go to war for 12 years, and we're trying to decrease that budget. But at the same time, we've got infrastructure that is aging. So when you start looking at the politics at home and the politics of what we've just done in Iraq and Afghanistan, it puts, unfortunately, Ukraine in a very different light than I think we would have had under Clinton or Bush. I mean, when we went to war in Yugoslavia in the late 90s, we hadn't been, you know, at war. We, we'd actually downsized, and we, you know, we didn't have tired troops. When we started the war in 2001, again, we didn't have tired troops. We have some very tired troops. Thought they were but, coming home, and I don't think they're going to say yippee hooray. We're about to go. To but, but, but let me ask this question, because your comment begs the question: Is you know whether the, this is not a troops issue? This is an issue of uh, this is in fact an issue of diplomatic efforts. This is a matter of diplomatic strategy, foreign relations. It's a matter of the credibility of, in the inter, in the eyes of the international community and those with our allies and those who may not be so close to us 
i.e. Russia. I don't think that the military has anything to do with it. Quite frankly, I think it's a matter of we drop the ball in the, in, in the, in the international community. We've got a caller. Caller from the 267. You're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? I just had a comment. I mean, I, I think um, the issue was in the first place that the um, Obama administration and uh, Victoria Newland, uh, the Assistant Secretary of State, funded the coup faction in the Ukraine. So they caused this mess in the first place. And I think it's breathtaking hypocrisy to say that the um, vote from Crimea to secede is somehow violates international law when the Obama administration funded the coup to overthrow a democratically elected government. And the one they put in place is more than happy to take um, IMF austerity loans. So I don't, I'm very sympathetic to the Russians in this case, and very unsympathetic to Obama because they meddled in a part of the world that really has no strategic value to us. If Russia did nothing, um, they would be losing a, a key base in the Black Sea. So I, I'm just uh, very, very. Um, I, I think it's just another instance of um, the fact that I think we have some very uh, moronic sociopaths in power that want to start a new Cold War with Russia, and it might spiral out of control and end up being worse. Denise, you were you were shaking your head. You disagree with the caller. I, I, it would be hard for me to believe that we would deliberately try to start a war with Russia. That we would be funding um, entities to the point where we would say we're going to do this so that we could enter into a war. At this point, I think we are doing our best to stay out of as many wars as possible. Well, and and shutting off their uh, sea ability to get into the ocean. Uh, is something that Russia would go go to war, right? Uh, and and we know that, and we would not uh, close the, the the ports there uh, at, at all. So I, I don't think that's a concern. No, Congressman makes a good point. Carl Tubin, you know, if you want to talk about sociopaths, look at <clears throat> the administration of George W. Bush, when uh, three or four or five people in the in the uh, Department of Defense and others urged them to go to war in Iraq. And they did it on a credit card and not to pay as you go. And that's one of the reasons why this country is in such bad shape today. Well, that's your opinion. That's your my opinion. opinion. My that's opinion. your opinion. And, and, yeah, and we're going to... Since, since when wasn't it all our opinion? <laughs> no, that's a good point, though. That's a good point. No, 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 no. Alan's not here today to insist on facts. Yeah, thank God. But I'm sure Alan's listening. Colin, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. I just have one more comment. Yeah, please. Um, well, to that person I just talked, I mean, the issue with Ukraine, if you want to go talk about Iraq, that's fine, but we have, we're talking about what's going on right now. Um, so, and in the larger context, I mean, he's right in the sense that we've been getting involved in these wars for many years. Uh, the point is, though, George Bush hasn't been in office since 2008. What we did in the Middle East, the meddling over there was bad enough. But now it looks like Again, based on these actions, they're gearing up for, I didn't say a, a war per se, but a new Cold War. And you have to ask yourself, and you can find it on YouTube, why did the State Department and the Obama administration fund the coup in the Ukraine? Why would you do such a thing if you're after peace? I mean, you have to really look at that, and that's part, part of the problem, in that people aren't talking about the fact that our 
through non-governmental um, non organizations, funded the coup in Ukraine. And, you know, if you, if you refuse to acknowledge that, you'll never understand the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that we have a bunch of people running our country. It's a bipartisan cabal. And they really, I think, want to create a new empire. I mean, that's, that's how I put it. If you want to be nice, you'd say they're policing the world and they want to make the world safe for democracy. But I don't, I don't see how they're doing that at all, especially because they just overthrew a democratically elected government in the Ukraine. And my feeling is they did it for two reasons. They did it, one, because that president took uh, a loan package from Russia instead of the IMF, and two, because he didn't show any interest in joining NATO. And the goal seems to be to... Um, expand NATO all the way to Russia's former, the former republics of the Soviet Union. So, and I by, think that's the real story. It's not being told. Okay, caller, caller, we're going to have uh, everybody listening. Please listen online, but we're going to have everybody respond to that. Good call, by the way. Um, call Tubin, you have a uh, response. To yeah, that. I'm sorry that you got off the phone uh, so quickly because I would like to know which NGOs are you talking about that have funded uh, <coughs> uh, funded uh, the Ukraine. Uh, in this way. I don't think that's true. And I'd like to know the facts on that as to who, where you heard your information and how you got it, even if you want to email it to us. Well, well Carl, wait a minute. The, re the reality is, okay, this, I'm not necessarily agreeing with the caller wholeheartedly, but let's look at, let's, let's look at the facts, okay? You had a democratically elected president this comes as a result of the Orange Revolution of 2004. The democracy in the Ukraine was something that we upheld and we supported through many, many years. And we did it through organizations like USAID, USTDA. There were IMF and World Bank programs going on. I mean, now then, but hold on. Let me, you wanted some of the facts. Let me give you some of the facts. Those are the facts. It's only when... The democratically elected government started taking a position that did not necessarily meet up with our position in the region. I mean, they, it was no question that the former president of the Ukraine absolutely felt a bond to Moscow more so than he did a bond to Washington, D.C. And when that didn't happen, did we actively go in there and fund the revolt? No. Was this a coup? It was a bloodless coup, but it was, it was a revolution, say nonetheless. And we supported that. We supported the people in the Ukraine. Bob Hines. Remind ourselves that the, uh, when this whole thing started, this whole struggle within the Ukraine, was the fact that the, uh, the, the European Union had uh, made uh, made uh, offerings to the uh, government of Ukraine to join Europe, as uh, Czechoslovakia, as Czech Republic has, as the Balkan states has, uh, the and the and Poland has, all of which were Russian controlled at one time or another. And when the Soviet Union fell, those countries became free, and they joined Western Europe, and they became part of the Western European Union. What happened was that the Putin talked to the president, with the president of uh, the Ukraine, and made an offer to him 
say, say we, we'll give you a better offer if you will uh, join our, our little uh, uh, Belarus and uh, Armenia, I think one other country, uh, in their little uh, uh, growth, you know, their economic uh, union there east of Europe. And uh, the president of Ukraine said, hey, that's a better deal, and I like the Russians anyway. But it just so happened that most of the people in Ukraine didn't like the Russians better than going into Europe. And they said, we don't like it. And uh, they had a revolution. And the guy jumped in a plane and, played and flew off to Russia. And it, it left, left, left the presidency. And then the whole thing began to break up. That's exactly but, what happened. But look, I, I mean, look, Bob, I, I, I agree with you. But when Yanukovych last November decided to pull the plug on the EU deal, that a lot of people because a lot of people went to bat here not just here but in London and in Paris and a lot of our NATO ally members went to bat for the Ukraine and when when Yakonovich uh, came back and said you know what I'm not sure this is the right deal for us that's when people started showing up and that was when the, the western oriented western Ukrainians started saying Whoa, whoa, whoa. We exactly. want to be part of the West. That's exactly right. Very good. And basically, uh, the president um, abandoned his, abandoned his uh, country and went to Russia. Yeah. And the, uh, then a new government was, was formed. A new government uh, wanted uh, obviously wanted to be closer to... But yesterday, but, but here's what I want to get to. Yesterday, the EU and the U.S. imposed travel bans and asset fr- freezes on several officials in Russia and the Ukraine, according to the BBC. total of 25 or 26 between the U- 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 European Union and ourselves. But they're talking... Individuals. They're just individuals. Yeah, but Denise, they're talking, they're talking about sanctions. They want to put in sanctions, and they want to freeze uh, bank assets of, 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 the Soviet, of the Russian government. All that's going to do is embolden Putin to his people... You want to talk about old Cold War national Soviet uh, nationalism? Guess what? We're going to see it right now if we start freezing bank assets. Yeah, I mean, but that is a standard maneuver. I mean, we, we've done it with the Libyans. We did it with every person that we didn't yeah. like. If we could grab their assets, we'd grab it, and you wouldn't be able to touch it. And that's a pretty standard, too. Carl Tubin? In Chapter 2 of this, uh, the, the assets being frozen are going to be the, the, the wealthy millionaires who, who surround Putin. And uh, there are some people in, in the United States circles who feel that this is when Putin is going to start looking, when his, his friends start to hurt. You're not agreeing with that, Denise Kraft? I, I am. I, I think when his friends start hurting, then he is going to uh, feel the heat. Now, However, what Putin usually does is when his friends start hurting, he usually takes their assets. <laughs> he takes a lot more than that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And finds yeah. new friends. There are still gulags. Yes, there, well, there are. So yeah, he, but I, I, you know, and he has the guns, and as long as he controls the army, I mean, that's really going to be key for him. He has to be able to control the army and the Secret Service and every other paramilitary. Well, this guy's old school KGB. I mean, Vladimir Putin's old-school KGB. I mean, if you don't think that he has total dominance over the military and over the FSB, you're nuts. Oh, I, I think he does. Uh, there's no question. Carl Tubin. Not only is he old-style, they were, uh, they were 
reciting a list of people who were around him, his chief of staff, his former KGB, and other people close to him in the government are all KGB. Well, and that's and that's the way he's running the government. Right, exactly. And, oh, you know, I it may well be that some of his friends are going to lose some assets or at least have him frozen temporarily, but the fact of the matter is I don't think that's going to change his mind. Why would it? Why would it, Bob? Well, it wouldn't. It's only 25 people in, 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 in Russia when they had their assets. But i got to tell you something. You know, we, we sit here and... and I'll make you a bet. In the last two weeks, most of them have already moved their stuff back to Russia. Of course they have. But yeah. the thing about it is, and here's the problem that I have, because now I've kind of gotten off of it because we need another Republican at the table. There's just too many Democrats here. Here's the problem hey, that I, I have. Can, I can have. Don't worry. No, no, no. Allow me to assist. <laughs> The reality is, is we've got a problem. We have a credibility. Between the two of you, you're taking up most of the time as it is. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, Congressman Alice, because you don't like these subjects. No, it's because I, I get tired of listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> fine, fine. We'll get a pretty voice in on it. Denise, Denise Kraft. If, if I was going to really try to go after him, I would shut down their internet. Because How are you going to... This, this is what I would do to them. Because you have a middle class that has become accustomed to a certain lifestyle. The lifestyle that the Russians had before the end of the Cold War up to about Shut down their internet? Yes, and, I'm just, and this is the reason. Before 1991, those of you are old enough to remember this, they had special stores for the special people. And you could go in and you could buy a lot of Western goods. So they became used to that. Then all of a sudden the Cold War fell, and you could go shopping. If you stopped the shopping and you stop their access to certain things, that's when the middle class rises up in Russia and says, no, no more, this is not stop. But, but, sh- shutting down, if we do something that the Soviets don't want, do you want them shutting down our internet? You asked me what I thought would work. Sanctions against 25 people aren't going to work. Now you, you that's cyber terrorism what you just described, though, Denise. Yes, Justin, it's called the New World Order. Good I don't believe we're advocating. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is happening? <laughs> I'm in a bizarre world. I suddenly find myself siding with a Democrat. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I'm in a bizarre world. It all went to hell when you started supporting Russia. But <laughs> I'm not supporting Russia. No, I'm not supporting Russia, for crying out loud. There's one fact that we missed. The, the, the people who had their assets frozen were people who had something to do with what is going on in Crimea. So it's not it's not the oligarchs. It's it's people who work in the government of generals, etc. Now I don't think they would have uh, too much money to move around. I, I, I'm still stunned with the fact that I, I got I got the biggest, I got the biggest Democrat, one of the biggest Democrats at the table, Denise, advocating for cyber terrorism against another superpower, and what? Hey, let me, let me put it this way. I'd much rather see cyber than, you know, the nuclear. Do you don't think that if we try to shut down their internet, they're not going to go ballistic? Good Lord. Okay, let's, we're going to move topics here. By the way, you can follow this madness on Twitter. At Backroom Politics. I, I never thought I would hear our moderator being a whip on Russia. Being a whip on Russia? You are, you are, you are absolutely... What are you talking about? Are you, oh, my God. The next time you say that the president isn't strong enough, I will remind you of who was supporting Russia. <laughs> what? 
guys are, how do you, wow, you guys are, <laughs> by the way, you can follow us at Backroom Politic, and also, the entire table turns on the moderator. I don't believe no, this. No, 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 I want to know, where's Alan when Justin really needs him? Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. So, so by the way, uh, you can follow us on, on Twitter at Backroom Politic, you can follow us also at our website, www.backroompolitics.org, and, by the way, you can see great articles such as one our great producer, Brent Sullivan, put up regarding Denise's article and her appearance last week. Uh, keep an eye on that. A lot more content coming your way on, on uh, backroompolitics.org. When we come back, we're going to try and round this cat up, and we're going to talk domestic stuff. We're going to talk about the midterms. They're nine months away. How big of a deal is it for the Democrats and the Republicans? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You can join the conversation at 877-662-3713. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. By the way, you can join the show. Our switchboard is open. You can call toll-free, 877-662-3713. Or you can tweet your questions at Backroom Politics uh, on the Twitter system. Uh, we're going to switch gears from the Ukraine to the midterms that are coming up. Big, big midterms, and this is going to be a doozy. This determines, this November will determine who contains power in the House, the Senate, and it's going to be a good segue into what happens two years later in November 2016. But the big question comes, Congressman Al, when we look at, I know, sorry to wake you up after the last segment, Al, I apologize. I'm getting nervous. Okay, Congressman Al, though, when we look at the tw- at the midterms coming up here in November, we've already had a special election in Florida that kind of set a tone for Obamacare's in trouble. You've got other races that are going to determine the viability of a Democratic majority in the Senate and a stronger majority possibly in the House for Republicans. How important is this for Democrats to get their act together? Well, you just explained why it's obviously important for the Democrats to get their act together. I don't know whether they can do it. <clears throat> I have this feeling that Obamacare, in the long run, is not going to be the drag that it appears to be now. And, uh, and as such, that will change things a little bit. But, uh, you know, all the, all the independent pollsters and, uh, and are suggesting that uh, the Senate is probably gone and that the House is, uh, is not looking very good at all. And I, I think that's sad. Uh, the House is in part because of redistricting and gerrymandering, and it's going to stay that way for, uh, for the rest of the 10-year period. But can you really, can you really blame the, the possible damage to the Democrats in the House on a gerrymandering issue? Or is this, a Bob Hines, a situation where, quite frankly, they just kind of dropped the ball on what they really should have done is solidifying their base. I'm sorry. Congressman Al, I'm sorry, go ahead. Not by dropping the ball, the Republicans have sat up there in the leadership and done absolutely nothing. They have allowed that little group, well, their mid-sized group of... uh, The Tea Party? Tea Party, to, to chase them around the room all the time. There is no way in the world that they should be reelected, but they're going to be. And the reason they're going to be is that they have gerrymandered at the state level enough districts that there just aren't enough seats in play for the Democrats to recover uh, the, uh, the majority. And I think the Democrats better spend a lot of attention over the next few years uh, seeing that doesn't happen to them again. Bob Hines, your retort. I believe that it is fair to say that the um, the House is substantially gerrymandered. I would say that there are probably of the 435 seats in the House. I would suspect that the number of 350 is about the number of seats that are pretty much clearly one party or the other. Both parties have gerrymandered. Both parties, oh yeah, yeah. There's no I mean, purity not, here. No, there's no. You know, both parties are equally, equally offenders here. 
it happens that the Republicans have more states legislators and uh, governors than the Democrats do at the moment, so they've been able to more states have been able to gerrymander. But some of the very biggest states, like California and New York, are just as gerrymandered in the Democratic side uh, as, uh, as the Republicans are in other states. California, I'm not sure. Oh, but well, remember, in the, in, the, in the year 2000, there were 53 Democratic, uh, there were 53 congressional seats up, and because of the uh, the excellent work of Phil Burton, not one seat changed party hands. No, no I absolutely agree. Yeah. Phil did, did a classic, <laughs> a classic job. Jerry Manor, but they they have changed the rules have, out there. They have changed the rules right. out there, and it would be nice if a few other states would have a, a better system than having the state legislatures draw a gerrymandered district. Denise Crap. For me, I would hope that my party would remember that we are a big tent, and while it is important to have labor, and it's important to have environment, and it's important to have others, we need to bring the business members back into our tent. Uh, I, I had a, a fascinating conversation with Bob Carey uh, about a week ago, and I really, really liked him. He was out of Nebraska, and he was the first, uh, first politician I ever worked for uh, at, at the national level. And I remember going up to New Hampshire for him, people were like, well, why, why do you like Bob Carey? And he said, well, because he's a veteran. And, and because I believe in what he stands for. And, you know, he reiterated what he stood for when I saw him last week. He said, look, I was a business person. And, and to me, that really struck a chord because I don't remember hearing in the past four or five years people saying, I'm a Democrat and I represent business. And I think we've got to get business back in because those are the folks that are going to help us better understand how some of the decisions we are making as Democrats are going to hurt us in the long run. Carl Tubin. Well, uh, Chairman Camp has uh, evidently introduced a bill or an idea that large financial institutions should be taxed. And uh, this has gotten Wall Street all up in a tither. And a lot of people on Wall Street are now saying, well, Goldman Sachs, for example, <laughs> was in the midst of uh, planning something for the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. That's now on hold and other people on Wall Street who were going to try to help Republicans are now pulling back. Um, I think that um, <clears throat> turnout, 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 and that's the big thing. But you're and, looking, but and, Carl, and, 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 and Carl you're, you're, you're staring down, you can talk turnout, 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 but if we look at the last two election cycles, the turnout just hasn't been there. I mean, you're, you're looking at some people predicting as low as a national 15 or 20 percent turnout, we're lucky if we break 25 percent, according to some folks. Bob, you disagree, but you're I talking turnout. Low. That's too low. Well, I, 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 but, I can imagine it won't be 75 percent. I can believe that. But it won't be 25 percent. You don't think so? No, not in the national election. As, as busy as things are right now, I just don't believe that. Really? I really think it, at, least, at least half the legal... Really? I, I think you're being optimistic, Carl Tubin. I'm Irish, what do you expect? That's true. Happy St. Patty's Day to you, post-mortem. Yeah, I've still got my green on. Good. Okay, good. The, uh, the St. Jolly election was a big wake-up call uh, as, to, as to what the Democrats have to do. Now, whether they can do it or not, whether they can talk about the issues that, that Al talked about, or they will talk about the Tea Party, which they didn't do in the last election, the last two elections, when they should have, and, 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 <clears throat> and some of the issues. Now, Jolly said, uh, kept saying, 
well, we have a we have a medical plan, and we're going to fix this with our medical plan. And the Republicans are working on a medical plan, but it hasn't but just as, yet. But but no, Denise, or Bob Hines, go ahead real quick, and I want to jump in. Mr. Camp has publicly put his platform, his his, his medical bill, on the table. It's out there. Okay. It's out there. It's in, it's in the public. It's in the public domain right now. But Denise Krebs, it, it strikes me that just as the Obamacare fight for the Republicans is starting to lose steam, the longer and longer it kind of stays in place, the Tea Party fight for the Democrats, that rhetoric also seems to be losing steam as the Republicans kind of coalesce themselves a little bit together. It, it almost seems like there's you're shaking your head no. No, but I don't think the Republicans are coalescing. Right. You've, got, you've got Republicans who are moderate, and you have Tea Party people that are not as moderate. And I don't see them merging in. I mean, you've got too many primaries and caucuses and other events that are going to happen over the next couple of months. It's not in their interest right now to merge. Possibly in October when it's all done and they're really hoping to win a seat. Well, the pri- right I mean, now. I mean, there's, there's, there's primaries going on, but th- those primaries are for 2014 congressional elections that are midterms. We're not seeing anything substantial in in presidential politics. All this is still speculation. Well, it's speculation. What you're saying is, you know, there's still a fraction. There's still fractionalism going on in both parties right now, within the Democratic Party and also within the Republican Party. Bob Hines. What Denise says is accurate. There are still a whole bunch of, of Tea Party Republicans uh, running in primaries against against existing members of the House and particularly in the Senate at least in five or six Senate races, very conservative Republican senators, people like uh, 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 Lamar Alexander, who is from Tennessee, who is very conservative. He's being Tea Party. It's insane. Down in Georgia, we've got uh, half a dozen uh, Tea Partiers tea looking at... Slugging it out with each other. They do all kind of bad things for the party as a whole. But what's interesting is, in almost every single race, the Tea Party people are not doing as well this year overall as they were two years ago or certainly four years ago. I think that the uh, some of the uh, reality of last fall is begin to get some Republicans back to thinking the Tea Party people are, you know, they sound nice, but they're really kind of nutty. We, I think that's a good thing for the Republican Party. The Tea Party seems to be waning rather than waxing. You know, uh... The reason why I bring this up is there's a great article in the Politico magazine online, uh, an article by Mohammed El Arain, uh in yesterday's Politico magazine, and it talks about the six things Congress should do right now. Uh, his opening thought is, on, on November 5th of this year, America's going to wake up to a shellacking. It's not going to be a Democrat shellacking or a Republican shellacking. It's going to be a general shellacking of Congress. That Congress right now, as a whole, stands to be the big loser in all this, particularly with single-digit approval ratings, a a logjam mentality that's on both sides of the House, and on top of that, he looks at six things that Congress should do right now. One of the things he says is, you know, do less harm to itself as a Congress. Congressman now you've got a Congress that created a government shutdown. They couldn't come to a deal on debt ceiling. Uh, 
Mr. L. Rain goes back and says that that his theory is that because that slowdown, it it because of the shutdown, it slowed down the economic momentum and undermined public confidence in Congress. It would seem that Congress that Congress itself should see that red flag and do something about it, but it doesn't seem they they got the message. They should have seen it two or three years ago. Uh, I, I I have been stunned by the fact that they they don't have more self interest in the Congress, or at least uh, do, do their self-interest in an effective way, like get some work done, uh, rather than uh, count their victories in, in who's got the, the nastiest press release about the other party. Uh, I think that the, the, here's the irony to me. The way the Republicans have run the House, all normal projections would be they're going to lose the House big. They haven't done anything. They've stopped everything. They've got, uh, they're fighting among themselves and so forth and so on. And the, the Democrats, to my utter astonishment, have been able to at least appear to be unified and uh, you know, more sensible. Uh, I know that's not true, having been in the party for a long time, but at least they look that way. Uh, and, and yet still, uh, the Republicans are likely to, to make gains. What's wrong? I think the Democrats have, for a long time, failed to have a good message operation. The Republicans have an excellent message operation uh, in the sense that they at least know how to, to get a, a position and, and, and repeat it and repeat it. Redundancy is the secret of the Republicans, uh, and, and the Democrats never can do that. We, if we lose the House in a significant way, it will be because we haven't told a story that would keep people with the Democratic Party. Carl Tuvin? First of all, uh, I think if one of the big worries about Republic and the Republican Party is that the president's popularity might start to rise. In some cases, it has started to rise in some polls. You're laughing, but it could happen. That's number one. Yeah, that's true. It could also snow in June. That's true. <laughs> Maybe in July. And it, the, the, second, the other thing is, is that, you know, the Democratic Party hasn't, hasn't really used the Tea Party uh, scenario to their benefit. It they, doesn't they work anymore, say, Carl. Well, I don't. Th- I, I think you're wrong. I think if I think my thinking is is that if you are able to say that this small group of people has has completely paralyzed the House, and the Republicans are now just thinking about, my God, an election's coming. We've got to do some things. We've got to be positive. We, and, and, and Boehner has started to do that. Yeah, but Bob, H- but Bob Hines, Carl's comment of it's the Republicans that have paralyzed the House, there are many that could say, well, wait a minute, that's a two-way street. And, oh, by the way, one can make the determination that it's the Democrats with their majority that have paralyzed the Senate. Well, no, it's not the Democrats. It's Harry Reid. <laughs> okay, if you want to target just one. Every time a bill comes to the Senate floor, he loads up the, the amendment tree so the Republicans can't have any amendments. And that's what's going on in the Senate right now. Everybody knows it. I mean, it's the obvious thing going on. 
But Congressman Al, this seems like self-inflicted wounds in Congress, and with such an important election coming in November for both parties, that they would they would look at the bigger picture and say, wait a minute, let's all stop this. We've got a problem. That's that's what I've been saying for three or four years to myself. No one else is paying any attention. It just seemed to me that self-preservation itself would change behaviors on the Hill. Uh, among and, and You see some of it among Democrats, but they're awfully quiet about it. You know, I know particularly a lot of the young Democrats, the freshmen, really feel strongly uh, that they need to get moving and doing things, but how much, how much clout does a freshman congressman have? So it's not getting uh, through. Bob Hines? I think, I think Al is right. Both parties have got themselves locked into positions that are... Uh, unsustainable? Well, they're, it's unsustainable and it's defensive and it's, it's not proactive the way, it, the way it ought to be with some good thinking and some good hard work and legislation. And it's very difficult when you have a situation like you do in the House where you have... The Republican Party is, is split between the Tea Party and the, and, the, and the rest of the party, and they, in certain situations, are fewer than there used to be in the last couple years, but they're still a real problem for the leadership, number one. And the Democrats, of course, are united against anything the Republicans do. So you've got three pieces in the House, and there's no majority. In the Senate, you've got the majority leader who won't let anything happen unless he controls it completely. So nothing happens in the Senate. And both parties are equally to blame. Uh, they have gotten themselves locked into these uh, positions where they are unable uh, to find ways to work together. I think it's very interesting that just recently in the Senate, uh, several Republican and Democratic senators have gotten together and worked out deals. I think Lamar Alexander has been one of the big leaders there, and, and Durbin as well. No, no Schumer. Schumer, yes, I'm sorry, Schumer. And it's, a very, it's very nice to see two senior senators, one from each party who's been there a long time, trying to find ways to get the body to operate the way it ought to operate. But, you know, but, we can only hope it will continue. But, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, when we look at, um, when, when we look at, Everybody's saying, well, it's fractionized. Everybody's taking a defensive measure. But then we look at Joe Manchin in the Senate, a Democrat, wanting to work with Republicans. You have uh, Republicans like Charlie Dent out of California, who, who is really trying to make... Oh, no, I'm sorry, Charlie Dent out of Pennsylvania. I'm sorry. Charlie Dent out of Pennsylvania, who, a Republican who's actively working with his lunch pail constituencies, trying to come up for, with something that is a better... For Pennsylvania, not so much better for him to get reelected. But those are just the minority of people that we see. It can be done. Why is this so difficult, Denise Krupp? I think part of it is it goes back to the gerrymandering. Most of the members of Congress are spending the majority of their time outside of D.C. I mean, when you fly in for votes that happen on Tuesday and then you leave by Thursday, you don't have the relationships that you once had. And then I think you need, I think, I know you need those relationships to make deals. You need to be able to understand the person across the aisle and say, hey, you know, I understand you. I understand what your needs are. This is what I need. Can we make a deal? And, and trust. You need and trust. trust. And you and can't can trust somebody it? if you don't know them. Exactly. These people don't know each other. They don't. They, no. they, they don't at all. 
And so they're, they're putting a lot of reliance on staffers. And I was a former staffer. And when you do that, that means you're taking away the responsibility that you are supposed to have under the Constitution. I, I was always amazed um, what, what I, when I joined the committee and, and staffer would say, well, I think this. And my thought was, well, that's great. What's the Congress's? Yes. And it took me a while to realize that there are a lot of members of Congress that have delegated power down to their staffers. And, and it is an equal opportunity offender on both parties. It is. And, and, and that's not what the Constitution was set up to be. The Constitution was the members of Congress who are the ones making certain decisions. But if you have to raise so much money to get reelected, then you have now delegated your responsibility down to sometimes somebody who's new, maybe 23 if you're lucky. Carl Tuvin, then Bob Hines. I want to ask you a question. Hasn't this all, all, in essence, been done for a, a while? I mean, congressmen have so many, so many issues that they're working on. They tend to, to uh, uh, depend on their staff to give them a concise briefing as to what you're going to vote on tonight or tomorrow or, or next week. And, and they may also make recommendations. Right. But when I was in Congress, uh, mm -hmm. I think that was handled properly. You would listen. Uh, they were doing the research. They often knew more details about a bill than you did, and you relied on them to let you know what you needed to know. Uh, but, uh, and usually, if you've got good staff that you hired because they tend to agree with you, 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 know, you, you tend to, to follow their advice because you agree with them. But I have said, no, that's not the way I want to go. Uh, and I think most members used to what they're doing up there now. I have no idea. Let me ask you a question, Bob Hines. You know, I look at people like Angus King from uh, from Maine, the junior senator from Maine, uh, an established independent, probably one of the stronger independents that we've seen in the Senate in a long, long time, or let alone stronger independents that we've seen in Congress. He's got the respect of both parties, and he's being recruited by both parties to try and make deals. Is now a time that we start seeing more people like Angus King possibly coming up, especially if there's a shellacking on both sides for 2014 midterms? Well, he's pretty unique. I mean, he has been in Should that be the case? Well, it, it, maybe it shouldn't, but it is. The reality is, in a, uh, Maine is a relatively small state. Is I think two congressmen. I think it's a two or three. I think it's, I think it's only two. We'll, we'll double check that. Yeah, and so you've got, and he's a former governor, and he's highly regarded on both sides. So he is able to, in effect, stand in the middle of the aisle, if you will, and try to make and try to work things out, make some things happen. That's not easy in some places. It's not easy in a bigger state. You've got to be maybe more partisan. Yeah, by the way, there's only two congressmen uh, representing the state of Maine. That's uh, Shelley Pingren and uh, Mike Michaud, both Democrats, by yeah, the way. Exactly. But the fact of the matter is, you know, he's, he's somewhat unique. And you need people like that. You need people that, are, that feel comfortable enough uh, in stepping outside their party's position to try to make some things happen. Rob Portman is a man like that. Lamar Alexander's a poor man like that. And uh, go ahead. Congressman Al. I, I, I'd just like to, to, to step back a little bit when we talked about uh, the whole Congress may get sh shaken up. And I think, uh, I, I think that's a very real possibility. 
And that could be a very good thing or it could be a very bad thing. If you elect people like this, Angus King, King uh, and, and a bunch of the freshman Democrats that I know from my state, I don't know whether that's true of all the states, that would be great. But that's also how we got the, the, the Tea Party, with people fed up to here and they were anybody but the incumbent, and you get some really screwball people running against the incumbent. So you could make matters worse by throw the rascals out. Uh, and the chances are probably greater that that's what will happen, and you get a bunch of really good people in there if you throw all the rascals out. But but Denny's crap, you know, we hear about the Tea Party. We hear about the moveon.orgs. But we don't, the one group that I think that could really take a stand and really uh, show some promise in fixing it is the organization No Labels. And they don't get nearly, what's that? I have no idea who they are. No Labels? It's, it's, I, I think the count is like 70 members of Congress that have come out and saying, look, the, the partisan bickering is just absolutely ridiculous. We're getting nothing done, and as a result, all we're doing is banging ourselves in the head with our own bats. Why don't we just come together and do what's right for the, or for the country what's, and govern instead of reelecting? It would seem to me, Denise Krupp, that the country's begging for more new labels and less Tea Party and MoveOn.org. Well, they are. The question is, how are they going to get the money to fund their campaign? Yeah. Could it be in the party's interest to fund those that are the most popular? And if you're an independent, you're not getting Well, not, these aren't independents. I mean, we're talking some pretty serious Republicans and Democrats. But, but 75 members of the House is a tiny fraction. No, that's 75 members of both the House and the Senate. That's the oh, problem. It's even smaller. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the fact that uh, Speaker Boehner is trying to do some different things now. Uh, he, he kind of put the kibosh on the Tea Party, and then since then, he's been trying to, to, uh, to, to, to have some new ideas sponsored by the Republican Party. And, of course, it's close to election time, and, and he's trying to make up for some of the stuff that they've done over the past five or six years. Well, I, I got to tell you something. I, you know what, Brent, our uh, producer, who's back in Syracuse this week, Brent, if you're listening, I want to get some folks from No Labels organization on the show. I would love to get their take, particularly going into this 2014 election, because if if what we're seeing right now is any indication, 20, I I agree with the article in Politico. It's going to be a shellacking for all of Congress. It's going to be not a pretty sight, Congressman Al. Well, then I I, I think. Uh, I'd like to talk to some uh, no-labels people, too. It's a good idea, but uh, Denise said, how, how are they going to pay for it? How are they going to raise the money? I remember once, uh, after I had announced that I wasn't going to run again, uh, a sheriff uh, in one of my counties uh, asked if I'd come down and talk to him. And his plan was that he was going to run a very low-cost campaign in which he was going to talk about the evils of money in the campaign and the need for less partisanship and a whole bunch of very good things. And I listened to him because he was a very nice man, what have you, and when he got all done, I said, how are you going to get the word out? He says, what do you mean? 
I said, how, you know, if you're not going to buy any television, if you're not going to buy any radio, if you're not going to do any direct mail, if you're not going to write a book pamphlets, how are you going to let anybody know all these wonderful so, things? So, by the way, oh, I'm well, sorry, go ahead, Congressman. And he just looked at me, and his face fell, and that was the last we heard of him. Yeah. So, by the way, No Labels, this, I, I'm checking out their website while, while we're here on the air. According to No Labels, this is out of their website, Quote, No Labels is a growing citizens' movement of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents dedicated to promoting a new politics of problem-solving. The co-chairs for this organization, ironically, Governor John Huntsman, Senator Joe Manchin, two people probably who have exemplified exactly what they're talking about, but I would love to get them on. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk a little, <laughs> we're going to get partisan again, we're going to talk a little Obamacare. Can Obamacare survive? The numbers coming out of Obamacare are not, not happy news for the White House and for Secretary Sebelius. When we come back, this is, oh, it's happy hour. It's time for us to order our drinks, cut open our cigars here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for the second hour of Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. You can join the conversation. You can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions at Backroom Politics over the Twitter venue. Uh, we're going to change gears right now. We're going to talk a little Obamacare, a little Affordable Care Act. For those of you who have not been monitoring it, it continues to be a thorn in the side of the administration. The numbers that came out the other day include an enrollment that tops $5 million, far short of the expectations of the administration. Well, and, um, well, that's well, they moved it down from eight, eight to five yeah. because they needed to. Because, I heard was six. No, okay, but $8 million apparently would have been great for the Obama administration. Five is a disastrous number for the administration. But, no. No, why, no, Bob, correct me. Because it depends on who's in the five million. Oh, we're going to talk about that, too. That's but, yeah, but the bigger question, though, the bigger question is, uh, you know, can, can Obamacare be sustainable and survive with the lackluster numbers that are being put up right now? Denise Krepp, we'll start with you. Oh, yeah. I'm not the right person because I have my own little problem with Obamacare. Um, we actually, but you're a Democrat. You should be all over Obamacare. You know what? I would be, except that it took them two months to send me the card, and that was after about uh, two months of calling and saying, um, well, we've enrolled. You cashed my first check. When are you going to send me cards? Meanwhile, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old who are very energetic and are always very nervous for those two months. I think if they could get over hurdles like that, that they'll be successful. But again, I'm probably not the right person to talk to right now. Uh, well, that, you're, you're exactly the right person, a Democrat who's not real thrilled with uh, Obamacare. Look, uh, the administration congressman Al yesterday said, according to several sources, that 800,000 people have signed up for the new health insurance so far in March of 2014. But the greater greater concern is how many of that 800,000 and how many of the 5 million total enrollees are what they call the uh, the untouchables, the, the the invincible sector of this market. The invisible Bob, you got to lift you got to lift up the lid. Bob Hines trying to light his cigar. He's going to light the place on fire, and we're trying not to have that happen. Uh, all, he, all he did was light himself on fire the other day. So we're trying to stop that. Yeah. But back to my question, though, these these numbers at five million, the invincibles aren't signing up as quickly as they need to be to sustain Obamacare, Congressman. And the invincibles are that's your t under thirty crowd that don't younger, necessarily younger. need it, that are relatively healthy condition, no pre-existing conditions, and that theoretically don't really need health insurance if they don't have to buy it. That's, that's going to come along, and, and, and I, I, I tend to agree. If what you're saying is that it's not going to be there to give it the boost right now at the front end where it needs to be, I think you're probably right. I think it will come along and that, that problem will be solved. Uh, the, the thing that no Democrat should say is the administration shot itself in the foot. And I, I think of just one thing. When, when, he, when, when the president said that uh, you will not have to change your doctor, you'll not have to change, you know, all of that, and it turned out to be untrue, 
uh, lost an enormous amount of credibility. And I don't know whether the president intentionally misled people, which would have been extremely foolish, or whether he just was terribly misinformed, which is frankly incompetent. Uh, I don't know why, but they, they, they've got a problem on their hands, and in large measure, they created it. The Republicans are doing everything they can to fan that flame, of course, as one would expect. But I still think that if you get back to the question of what are you going to replace it with, uh, I am wholly unimpressed with Republicans saying they have a plan. I happen to respect the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, but his, his bill is not being well received by other Republicans. Uh, so I think they, they always talk about uh, do it another way, a better way, a finer way. But they've had 40 years to do that, you know, and they have been in, in the last 10 years, they've had lots of opportunity to do that. And they never have. And I think that uh, we'll all be in our graves uh, waiting for them to do anything. So what we've got is Obamacare, or we go back to a, and admittedly, everybody admits, a lousy system that we had before. And at some point, some Democrat, maybe the president, is going to figure out that that's a message that needs to get out to the people. Bob Hines. It is untrue that the Democrats have shot themselves in the foot. The wound is much higher than the body. Wow. <laughs> Here's what's going on right now. I think they're going to get. I think they're going to get between five million and six million, which is on the light side. But I think it's enough to keep the system going if, if the uh, young uh, invincibles, as they're called, the 18 to 32 group. They needed to buy approximately, from their own estimates, 40% of, the, of their numbers who would sign up to be in that group. And it appears that they're running about 24 to 25%, which means that, well, if we go into the election time, we're going to be having everybody hearing that their premiums are going to go up by 15 or 20% because the money isn't coming in. That's going to be a real big problem. Denise, uh, uh, Carl Tubin. It's a bad situation for the Democrats. And, and as we have all said in, in the other programs, uh, <clears throat> it is, it is the, the rollout. It is the fact that they haven't sold the program. And all of a sudden you have um, uh, the president talking between the weeds and you get a rush for a people going in to, to sign up for Obamacare. Denise. Now, oh, now, I'm sorry. Now they have uh, around basketball, they've got basketball stars on talking about Obamacare, uh, and that's probably going to go all the way through the tournament, and it's going to be interesting to see how many people are going to sign up in the month of March. Uh, well, you've got LeBron James. You've got one star that's been talking about it from basketball. Yeah, but I'm sure you're going to have others during the tournament. But well, I, I, regardless, Denise Krebs, you had a thought. As frustrated as I am with this process, it, it has been very frustrating. It's also something I recognize is necessary. It is much cheaper 
to do preventive medicine than it is to go to the ER for your common cold, for your common um, spray. So I, I, I think that we do need the medical care, but we'll have to go with the message that Alan was talking about of we need this now because the alternative is actually far worse. It is. I mean, we cannot afford to have children that don't have um, preventive medicine. We, we cannot afford to have others that, you know, die out because you get cancer. I mean, I've had two friends that had to declare bankruptcy because they didn't have insurance. They have to declare bankruptcy and then live that the rest of their life to pay your bills. It's a horrible thing to do to somebody. So we need change, but it's going to have to be change that we actually work out. Um, it's the best thing I, I, um, somebody said when we were rolling this out was, well, you know, look what's happened with AT&T and with Verizon and with other companies that have rolled up these programs. Sometimes they work, sometimes they didn't work, but we still love them and we still love them for no other reason than we like our iPhone. Um, we have to have the right message as Democrats to sell this program to make sure that people are getting into it, and not only are they getting into it, but they stay in it. That's going to be important. Bob Hines? I don't disagree with anything that's being said about the Joe. We have to have a medical program here in this country. The unfortunate thing was, right from the beginning, the Democrats decided that they were going to do the thing their way, and the Republicans had no voice in the matter. Right. Neither in the House or the Senate. And I think, fundamentally, the biggest mistake you can make in a democracy is to tell one party, you're not important anymore, you're not involved in the biggest thing we're going to be doing for the next few years, and go go home and stay back. Because it automatically makes a problem. And Congressman Al. It's unfortunate that it happened that way, and it really is unfortunate, because we could have, we, we meaning the Congress, the Congress could have written a much better bill than they wrote. Right. If both parties were, were responsible for it. I Congressman Al. I completely agree with his last statement and try and get, <coughs> excuse me, I was out in left field and uh, I was phoning it in from there. Uh, <coughs> the problem is that the Republicans weren't, didn't, if you take from the time President uh, Obama was elected, how much cooperation did he get out of the Republicans on anything? And now you come along and say, well, on this one, you should have included them in so that they could cut, cut it off at the ankles. I, I mean, I, I just don't see where they have any credibility to be allowed in. In addition to which, the way to do what Bob said, and he is absolutely right, that's the way it should have been done, was cleared when uh, uh, Speaker... Uh, John Banner? No. Go back a couple. Gingrich. Gingrich. When Gingrich basically destroyed the committee system. That's where the two parties can get to work things out. I think the idea that you're going to bring the speaker into with the president and with Harry Reid or whoever and, and hash those things out at that point, that's not where details get worked out. And what the Republicans' legitimate concerns are, this, this has flaws in it. And a lot of those flaws could have been worked out on a bipartisan basis had the Democrats had but, any feeling whatsoever that the Republicans would cooperate. Well, but Bob, on the same point... But they didn't try. Well, the point. 
Well, but, but on the same point, though, on, on the same point, hold on, Denise. On the same point, Congressman Al has a point, though. Absolutely. I mean, what we, what we have, though, is whereas maybe the Democrats may have taken it back to their own head on the Affordable Care Act, the Medicaid expansion, the Republicans have taken a beat down. They refused in many states the Medicaid expansion. You're talking about, you know, I was looking at an article uh, from uh, Paul Waldman that came out this morning talking about the new numbers and what we can take from these numbers. Waldman makes a good case that the Republicans failing to expand Medicaid, a person making $3,200 a year in Alabama is too wealthy for Medicaid. It's $3,700 a year. In Texas, you're too wealthy for Medicaid. To me, that seems like, wait a minute, whereas, you know, they're trying to, the Democrats are trying to work their way and work their magic on ACA, the Republicans are saying, hey, we don't care about the poor. $3,700 a year? <laughs> you might as well live in a mansion, dude. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, I think the governments and states that operate that way are going to discover pretty soon that uh, they are indeed doo-doo, and they should be. And I think it's also true that several states that originally said we're going to stay out of the plan have now moved into it because they see that they need to do it. But you know, listen, you look at Texas, you know, you, I really fundamentally believe Texas ought to retire. <laughs> they, they keep saying they want, to, they want to succeed. I want to volunteer for it. You, you, you want to start that, Bill? You want to start, start that petition? But, you know, but again, though, Bob... You have, you have to make... The government of the state is responsible for those programs, and if they're not doing it reasonably well, then they ought to be voted out of office. But, Bob, here's the problem that I have with, with the Republican Party that goes out and they say, well, you know what, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare, they, it was done, the Democrats didn't talk to the Republicans, the Republicans didn't engage, however you want to say it, but the Republicans are going around saying, look, we have Medicaid. That's what Medicaid's for. You're trying to reinvent the wheel with the Affordable Care Act, but the afford under Medicaid, if they do it under Medicaid, 5.2 million Americans, according to a couple of studies, would be insured under Medicaid without the Affordable Care Act had they just expanded Medicaid. They don't have to support ACA. Just expand Medicaid. The program you're saying is already in existence. The Republicans don't want to do anything. I, I'm old enough that I was here as a staffer when they passed Medicare. You are old. I am old. Yeah, you I are old. Really old. And, and so you are very old. And so am I. And, and, and what they... <clears throat> at that time, the Republicans were totally against Medicare. They didn't want it. It had to be passed by the Democrats over Republican objections. Uh, and, 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 and they haven't done anything. Look, during my lifetime, which for the sake of argument, let's say, starts with Harry Truman, the Democrats have been trying to do something about health care, and the Republicans have always found reasons to avoid it. That's not true, though, Congressman. That is so not true. Richard Nixon made it a key point of his administration working with Ted Kennedy and made it a key point in his State of the Union address in 1974. And who killed it? Ted Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. And he said he was wrong. Yeah. Yep. He said in his biography that he was wrong yeah. and he should have done it and done it incrementally. And by the way, now, by the way, though, where the Republicans 
got silly, where the Republicans got mind-numbingly bizarre, is they should have taken the Nixon proposal that had the right. support of, of, of Democrats and Republicans, put that to the floor, and said, here's an alternative. Oh, by the way, because at the time this went through, Senator Kennedy was still alive and in a Senate seat. I would have sat there as a Republican and said, fine, you guys want affordable care? Here's the deal. Go back to the 74 bill. Let's lock this out. Everybody's happy. We'll go home. I think that's exactly right. But nobody did that. But right. nobody no, did that. No, no Republican nobody did that. Did it, but the other problem we haven't talked about is that lurking problem in the back, which is the veterans. I mean, never in our history have we sent so many people back and forth to war. When you're talking about five to six deployments over the past 12 years, you're going to come home with problems. And but that's a VA. That's a VA situation. That is a VA situation that, that is completely separate. And can, that's what I'm saying. You've got that's a completely separate funding force. That, that's a separate no, discussion. No, 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 it's not. Not because the VA and the retirees and the civilians are all linked. And I only know this because my parents are retirees in North Carolina, where you have to fund both your TRICARE and you have to fund your civilians. You have to fund that, both of them because they're linked together in a very arcane way. So when we start talking, I, about, I, when we start talking about insurance, Everything is related to one another, and I bring it up because we're talking about We're comparing apples and oranges here, Denise. But those apples and oranges are sitting together in a nice little bowl, and we're starting to look at everything right now. We're going to use fruitful analogy all day long. Absolutely, we're going to use that because it's going to relate to one another. The civilian sector is being tapped with helping out all these veterans. Now, these civilian sectors, and I say that, Million talking about the doctors are beginning to leave the medical practice because they're pissed off at what's going on with Obamacare. Then who's going to help the veterans who are suffering from a heck of a lot? But of you're talking about treatment? look, fund the VA all day long. I have no problem with that. That benefits me as a veteran. I would do that all day long. At what cost and whose program are you cutting to fund the VA? And are you going to try well, to well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't. I think we're getting too deep in the weeds here. The reality is though. That when we, when we brought up Obamacare as a nation for a discussion and a debate in Congress, that debate was shut down. And as a retort... Oh, please, don't even start going down the line. The poor, poor me, I'm a Republican. I don't get an opportunity to minute. talk. Do you have any idea what you guys did to us when I was in the minority? Because I was both in the majority when we were the majority up to 94, and then I was in the minority, and then we were in the majority. And the last time I seem to remember when we were in the minority, you guys didn't even let us in the room. So please don't give me the woe with me, I'm a Republican. You're talking about Bill Thomas? Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh we've hit a nerve with Congressman Al. <laughs> Carl Tubin. As a matter of fact, not only wouldn't they let you in the room, they invited lobbyists to come in the room to help. Oh, jeez. Uh, okay, we, we've completely gotten off track. Let's get back there to focus are no, here. Of Let, yeah, yeah, of course not. No, 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 no. And they've never been on the floor before. Oh, my God. No. At that time, during the 90s, uh, there was a, the Ginrich rule was only deal with Republican lobbyists. If you're a Republican office, don't let Democratic lobbyists in. Well, that, that, that's not a Gingrich rule. That's every rule. Yeah, everybody does that. You did be well with me. I'm Republican. Back at you. No, no, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Time. Completely off track. Completely off discussion. We can have that discussion on another day. The reality, though, is 
the reality is you have got a situation where the Democrats ramrodded something that was not even vetted to perfection through Congress without debate. And, oh, by the way, the Republicans are not at fault because they did the same thing by having Republican governors not vet the idea of expanding Medicaid, which is the backbone of their argument on the floors of Congress saying, hey, we already have an Affordable Care Act. It's called Medicare Medicaid. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have no problem saying that. I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. Good. Everybody take a drink. Hey, I'm for that. Who's buying? I love these slow news cycles. These are great. We need more of these. You also have some Republican governors who who are taking the uh, the the Medicaid uh, money because they. By the way, there are Democrat governors that have turned it away too. Right, right, exactly. So you know, a pox on both of our houses. Well, I I I agree with that, And, and 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 I've had a. I've had a feeling in the pit of my stomach for a long time that we need some fundamental, some very fundamental reform in our system that uh, it goes way beyond anything we can do. I mean, it, it starts with gerrymandering and it goes, it goes to uh, the fact that Republicans aren't talking with, and it goes back to the committee system has been trashed. Of things need to happen. If we had a committee system through which the Democratic bill had to go, it would have come out very differently. It would have come out better, and it would have come out with some Republican input and with less Republican opposition. Correct. With, with less Republican opposition. So do we blame? Do we blame the leadership? We, we can blame the Democrats because they were in the leadership, but we can also blame the Republicans. Well, they were so we blame Gingrich, first of all, yeah. for wrecking the Well, I don't, I don't think, wait, 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 wait. I, I don't think blaming, look, I don't think blaming Newt Gingrich is necessarily the solution here. Any number of speakers, including Speaker Boehner, including Speaker Pelosi, when she had the chair, could have switched that out, and they chose not to. That's true. And I think that's one of, you've heard me say some unkind things about uh, Ms. Pelosi. Oh, so much for having her on the show. And, and, and one of them is that she didn't revise what, uh, what Gingrich, I, I, I just like him so much I can't remember his name most Newt, of the time. Newt Gingrich. <laughs> Newt Gingrich. And, 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 she, and she continued that same process, that, that, that he was wrong and she was wrong and Hastert was wrong and Boehner is wrong and we've got to get back to using the committee system. Okay, so the committee, okay, so last thought, Carl Tubin, real quick. The last thought is, I'll go back to, to what we discussed last week and we discussed today. The, the movement by Lamar Alexander and Chuck Schumer to, which they've been working on for months, to bring groups together and get some legislation passed is a very positive thing in the House. Hopefully, Lamar Alexander will win his primary and stay in the Senate. Uh, Schumer is there, probably be there until he the not, doesn't be, want to be. But the question is, will Reed let it happen? Because he, he can stop what they're trying to do. Yeah, but I think he will. I hope you're right. Well, we'll we'll see when we come back. 
We're going to talk about a very disturbing report that broke today regarding the Navy Yard shooting. Apparently, several supervisors at the Navy Yard that supervised the uh, the the shooter uh, apparently noticed very disturbing behavior as far back as six months prior to the shooting and did nothing about it. Could, 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 could we just define that shooting? There have been so many shootings that... Uh, I don't want to make this a gun control debate, but this, I said the Navy Yard shooting. I know, but explain that just a little bit. I will. When I come back from break, I will talk about the Navy Yard situation when we come back. I'll do that as my introduction. Thank you. Can I moderate the show, please? Uh, let's take a vote. Yeah, let's take a vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. Vote no. Vote no. I dare you. Vote no. Watch how quickly you get dead air. You, you have my permission to proceed. Thank you. This is backroom. Pol- this is backroom politics. The best political talk show that you never heard of, and apparently may never hear of again after today. We're live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to talk about a uh, situation. A Navy report just came out the other day uh, regarding uh, the Navy Yard shooting that happened last year. Uh, for those of you who do not recall, uh, September 16th of last year, uh, a gentleman by the name of Aaron Alexis uh, walked into the Navy Yard complex and went into Building 197. And as a result of his armament and 
his will to do harm to others managed to take the lives of several uh, uh, Navy civilian Navy civilian government employees and contractors, uh, 12 to be exact. Uh, that um, the that Navy Yard is in, in the Navy Yard. Yeah, the Navy Yard is is basically the headquarters for naval operations outside of the Pentagon. Uh, it is a known landmark here in D.C. However, uh, remember that day very very vividly. Uh, it was it was just a, 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 a horrible day. But according to a Navy report, uh, as a result of internal probes, <clears throat> there are several people that have come to light that said, according to the Department of Defense report, a pattern of misconduct and disturbing behavior that said that supervisors knew of Mr. Alexis's disturbing behavior and did nothing to report it up the chain. What has happened is, apparently, according to this Department of Defense memo, and I'll paraphrase, that had these reports gone up the chain, they would have been grounds to immediately revoke his clearance and access to the Navy Yard itself. Uh, Denise Krepp, this is a very, very disturbing report to know that the lives of 12 Navy civilian government employees and contractors could have been saved if certain managers had taken it upon themselves to report the disturbing behavior that they viewed. How did it get this way? Life. Uh, uh, and, I'll, and I'll say that. Well, first, let me caveat this. Um, for those of you who remember um, the, sh the show we were talking about that day, my own daughters were kept in school, and I couldn't even get to them. So I, I'm a little biased on, on this issue. But I'm also a former supervisor within the federal government, and I've seen that people don't report. They, they don't report because they fear retaliation. I mean, we've got um, such a litigious point where if he reports something, and if it counters what somebody else has already said, if he's a wonderful guy, he's great, or she's a wonderful person, and all of a sudden you say, actually, there are problems, and sometimes the supervisors themselves are the ones that are looked at and said, well, maybe it's you, maybe it's not this person. So there, there's that aspect of it. Then there's the other aspect of it, which says, okay, so you do report it. Well, then what happens? Well, then what probably will happen is you end up getting the legal office involved, civil rights involved, HR involved, and that could take a bit of time. It is very, very difficult to um, take action against somebody who has taken steps. So when this, while this report may say that, you could go for an immediate firing? I doubt it. No, 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 no. but it, it would have been, an, according to this report, that and there, there are two problems here. Number one problem is the issue of the Office of Personnel Management, as we commonly refer to as OPM. Right. Uh, the Office of Personnel Management is the governing body of giving clearances or adjudicating clearances to those who apply for it. Uh, that combined with the defense security services are the ones that actually issue the clearances themselves. What this report says is that the OPM investigators were quote unquote missing critical information in the review of his file, which means that somebody dropped the ball, Congressman Al. Should this be a reason for us to go back and look at OPM's role or are they just stretched so thin that they can't even do their job effectively anymore? Well, I don't know the answer to your second question, but 
as we as we cut funds and tighten things and what have you, uh, that kind of thing is more likely to happen than otherwise. So it's possible that that is the case. I don't know, uh, but there, there, there's something, and, and Denise may want to comment on this adversely. Uh, I just keep finding that the military has a mindset on, the, on, on sexual harassment and all kinds of things is a mindset that we just know best and stay out of our business. And uh, that disturbs me a lot. I don't want to get in and tell the military how to run wars. But I think we need to step in a little bit and, 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 and see how they, how they deal with their personnel. I, I would agree. I, I think you do need to go in. And by the way, it's not just the military, but it's military plus civilians that you need to go in and say, how are you working with your employees writ large? Uh, there has been a problem uh, within the federal government, and, and folks are beginning to talk about it. And, you know, what happens when you have an employee that acts in a way that is not proper? What are the steps you are supposed to take? How long will it take you to help this individual either solve this problem or ask this individual to leave? It can take up to a year. It's not something that is automatic. No, but OPM, OPM does have, if there is a supervisor's claim that there is disturbing behavior, OPM can suspend access to a facility and suspend the clearance, not revoke it, but suspend it pending investigation. Right, that's, that's different. What you're saying is they can revoke clearance, but that doesn't mean that this individual can't, A, go on base. So that's the second step. So do you, are you pulling this individual from this base? And then the third step would be, do you fire this individual? It is incredibly difficult to fire this individual. Okay, but let's... Let's look at the case of Aaron Alexis, though. Aaron Alexis had disturbing behavior in his Naval Reserve time, which was noted by several of his commanders. Aaron Alexis demonstrated during his time as a contractor working for TEI, the Experts Incorporated, at the Navy Yard, he demonstrated clear disturbing behavior and had... And, and that into itself was... That into itself had, had management at TEI or the supervisors that were GS level civilians right. taking that information and pushed that to the Office of Security, Naval Security Systems, they could have suspended it pending investigation, which means had they followed that route, they could have prevented him from going in arms. You're right, Justin, but that doesn't happen in real life. I know because I did it with a petty officer when I was in active duty. The petty officer was poor, absolutely poor. And the only thing I could do was basically send him on to his next command. Then I got a phone call from the next command from somebody else, an officer, going, how dare you give me a subpar petty officer? And my response was, that's what I was told to do. That's what happens in the military. So when you go back to the congressman said, absolutely, we should be talking about how we are passing on some very bad apples. The other part is, you know, what are we doing on the personnel system? It has to be revamped because I had to deal with that when I was over in the government. Several of us had to deal with that. I had to deal with that. Every A lot of people had to deal with that. Bob Hines. You were told you had to pass somebody on. Yes. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, if this person was as bad as, as you say, 
How could it be passed on? Why wasn't it stopped? Because you write their evaluations and you write it in such a way that they go on. Well, you don't tank them because what happens is that person goes to you and says, well, you obviously are the problem because you're the supervisor. Everybody else is giving me glowing remarks. This is all wonderful. Well, then we have the bureaucracy is is destroying uh -huh. the system. Ah, uh, there we go. Now, now wait a minute. You, the bureaucracy is destroying the system. Let, yeah. me, let me tell a, a, a little story about uh, a school district. Okay? My wife was... Uh, very involved in the teachers union uh, in this particular town and she talked about one kindergarten teacher and she said this woman is hurting children not physically but she, she's destroying children uh, and something should be done so later on the school district fired her uh, the teachers union went to bat in her defense and I said and my and my wife was on the board doing it and she said the school district didn't do it in the right way there are procedures by which they could fire her and the teachers union wouldn't raise any issue at all but they didn't do it so we have to defend this woman who my wife said was damaging children because the school district didn't do it in the right way. Now, is that the union's fault, or is that the, the administration's fault, or, you know, how could something so ludicrous as that occur? Bureaucracy is the answer. But the, but the, issue, the issue still comes back to, we're, we, we now live in an age where we have instant access to instant records as they become available. You're not interested in the government. I can tell you the problem. I, I, well, you, you know, the, the funny thing about it is I look back, I got, you know, I look back at a story where we had in our employ a, uh, a, an individual who was working at an organization inside DHS. This individual had uh, allegedly come back on an authorized visit to Cuba with Cuban cigars in their, in their pouch, okay? When they reached Miami, Customs and Border Protection pulled the cigars, cited this individual. Ten years later, that individual applies for a job with this organization. They get hired. During the background check, it comes back that this had happened. They are immediately suspended pending investigation. And, it, I mean, there are examples where the system does work. However, what Chuck Hagel, Secretary of Defense, has said is that in this time of Internet and documentation and instant records, there should not be a problem implementing what he calls a continuous review process, meaning that if you have a security clearance, you have the ability to have your life scrutinized on a daily, weekly, monthly basis as it goes through. But that, that system isn't there. I mean, Congratulations to whoever can build that system, but I can tell you that system is not the, there. This, the system isn't there in the federal government. The system is there right now. They just choose not to implement it. And that's what Chuck Hagel, I think, is saying as a result of the tragedy at the Navy Yard. Right, this is exactly what, what we are talking you're about. Privacy concerns. Do you want the federal government to have access to every single piece of paper regarding your life? Yeah, well, and wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You signed, but wait a minute, Denise, when you, when you sit there 
and you sign off on your security clearance, you automatically give the government the access and the right to check you on a regular basis. You suspend privacy. For 14 years, and I fully understand that, but now you're going to head into a privacy debate. Now you're going to head into a privacy debate, and then you're also going to head into a federal versus state debate because the questions the states are going to have is, should the federal government have access to state databases? If you get arrested in Maryland for a felony, okay, I will tell you right now, if you hold a clearance, you absolutely should have that record readily available to you. How many states want to have their databases tapped into by the government? When it comes to, wait a minute, when it comes to matters of national security and security clearances and the prevention of what we saw down at the Navy Yard, I guarantee you, there's not a state that's run, whether it's FELE, whether it's SLED, whether it's Department of uh, Criminal Justice up in New Jersey, none of those. And if you want to start talking about those databases, those databases aren't updated regularly. And so what's happening down in some states is that if you are arrested but not convicted, the arrest is popping up, but the non-conviction is not. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But what what Chuck Hagel, what Secretary Hagel is saying is in fact that you can have your security clearance suspended pending outcome of adjudication. That is not wrong. When it comes to matters of national security and classified information, particularly when there are obviously very disturbed individuals that currently have access to federal buildings and classified information that don't necessarily need to have that because of a failed OPM and DSS process. And look, Jeff, I'm not going to disagree with you. I was really pissed off that I couldn't get to my kid. So for that Cretan to do what he did, I could tear him limb to limb. That's not a problem. I'm a mother. Let me at you. But what I'm telling you is that there are going to be arguments that, is, that are going to be opposing this, and it's not going to They be can fun. argue it. They can argue it all day long. I'll tell you what. But I, I do go back to Bob Hines. Denise does bring up a good question, though. At what point does the federal government stop worrying about the ACLU and start worrying about protecting its own employees from people like the, the, uh, the Saren guy? Well, you know, basically, if the system is not, cannot find or it cannot respond to information that it has, it says someone is inappropriately places they shouldn't be and doing things they shouldn't be able to do because they're not stable or something. I don't care who is in charge. The fact that the system doesn't work is the biggest problem. And we have, the bureaucracy is so encumbered. It is so weighted down with rights and privileges and protections and all that kind of stuff. And quite frankly, it's it's a disaster. Yeah, and we I, need to clean the system up, and I don't know how to do it. I have no idea. I don't know that anybody knows how to do it because, uh, look, anybody who begins a sentence with "it's simple" is wrong. Is wrong. Yeah. By definition. Yeah, by definition, because nothing is simple, and it's not complicated because it's easy to blame it on the bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy adds a lot of. But let me tell you about a bill I tried to introduce when I was a freshman. I, I thought that it would be a good idea to allow young people, young married couples, 
to be able to put some money aside for the down payment of a house and have it taxed taxed the way uh, 401ks or yeah. Okay, so, and I, by God, I found out that there was a senior Republican, Bill Frenzel, who had already introduced the bill, so, and he was on Ways and Means, and so I got together with him, and he was very kind to me, and, and we wrote it up. I took it over to, uh, to, to the Congressional... Congressional Research Service? No, not the Research Service, but the, but the lawyers over there that helped us. Oh, yeah, the bill. right. And I saw this simple little thing. We just say that if you, if you, you know, you put the money aside, you it up. And so I'm talking to this lawyer, and I'm not doing an anti-lawyer thing here. He said, he, he said, okay, fine. What if two single people each have one, and then they get married? Do they have double ones, or does one disappear? What do you do about that? And so we figured out something. Like this. Okay, now, now, what if they get divorced? You see, he wasn't raising a bunch of legalistic stuff. He was talking about real life. And suddenly, this simple little bill turned out to be a 35-page bill dealing with all of these things. Life is complicated, and the government... Has to has to somehow address those life complexities, and it leads to incredible bureaucracy. I hear you. I hear you, Carl Tubin, real quick. The only problem with with a lot of what we're discussing, even if the rules were changed, you know, to have someone accuse Bob of of doing something or different things. And suppose it goes through, suppose they revoke your security, and then it goes through, and you're clean. You don't have anything. What happens to the person who blew the whistle? But, but wait a minute. But what we're saying is, though, that's not the process. The process is that, that OPM and DSS, Defense Security Service, will suspend, under the current rules, they will suspend his, his clearance and access to facility, classified facilities and classified information until adjudication. If he's adjudicated not guilty, he'll go back. And what legal fees has he mounted up in the process? That's, but DSS and OPM doesn't care about that. They, that's the justice that's system. Point. If you've been accused <laughs> of something and you have legal defense, that, that's, that's unfortunately lies on the individual. However, OPM can't get into that. It's a matter of, you know, you could be found guilty, you're innocent, but we're going to suspend you until the accusation is cleared. And break you. Well, that, unfortunately, that's a whole... Now you're talking about a whole other discussion, Congressman Al. And with, and with that... Part of the complexity. Well, okay. I, I will give you that. But with that now, we've got nine minutes left in the show. It's time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story where we talk about buzz... Innuendo and rumor going around Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway. Congressman Al, tell me a story. This is most painful to me. Last week, we asked around the table who was going to win the Florida primary. Oh, you had to bring that up. You had to bring that up. And, and all of us said it was going to be the woman who lost. Alex, thank you. Except one person. 
who, I want to say this nicely, but, 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 but I'm tempted to say speaking at the guts to take a side, but Bob, Bob was the only one who said it was too close to call. So, good, Bob. Good job, Bob. Good job, Bob. Yay. Well, you know, sometimes it's better to straddle it than to say anything smartly. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. I was right. It was too close to call. It was less than 3,000 votes and about 220,000 votes. It was quick. It was a very close call. Mm-hmm. And it was an upset. Bob, that's going to be your story. Denise Kreft, tell me a story. On a lighthearted note, I am determined, from the heck or high water, that yesterday was the last snow day that those of us who are parents of D.C. school children will have to endure. <laughs> With that being said, if you would like to challenge my attempt to be positive in seeing my children attend school for five days in a, in a week, I'd encourage you to email us and tell us what do you think is going to be the last snow day. <laughs> wow. Will it be in March? Will it be in April? Or Justin, have you chased us? And nope. are you putting us into June? No, nope, we're going into June. Groundhogs don't <laughs> lie. Carl Tubman, tell me a story. Is it this decade? No. No, then no, no, no. It's an interesting story. All right. I was watching on PBS uh, a whole thing about Oscar Hammerstein. And there were things that I didn't realize. I, I knew he was liberal. But. Hoover, FBI, was following him every place he went because he raised money for the Hollywood Ten. He also uh, um, he also was a supporter of the United Negro Congress and also was a, a member charter member of the Royal Federalists. The thing that blew my mind is that at some point, Adlai Stevenson asked him to look over a speech and make some corrections. And he did. And then Stevenson said, would you work with me more to help me do this? So not only was he a great orchestrator of beautiful music and shows and all, but he also dipped in politics and helped Stevenson uh, write speeches for his campaigns. All right, I'm going to let that one go. Okay. Thank, thank goodness that Mr. Hammerstein was better at musicianing than he was writing speeches. <laughs> Good point. I remembered about Mrs. Hammerstein. No, I, 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 Bob, Al, Al. Everybody Al. the time, this is a great story. Al, no, no. You're being denied a great story You're being denied story a great story out there, out there. right. I'm taking moderator privilege. Deal with it. Uh, two, two big stories. Number one, yesterday, uh, last night, uh, news out of North Dakota. Uh, State Senator George Sinner has filed paperwork and has formally announced that he will be running for member of Congress, the only member of Congress out of North Dakota. Uh, he, and he is a uh, state senator. He is the son of the uh, former governor of North Dakota. And ironically, it is an at-large. North Dakota has only one congressman. Currently, that congressman is Kevin Kramer. Kevin Kramer is going to have a fight on his hands come November. It is going to be close. Sinner is a well-loved, beloved name out in North Dakota. So that's going to be a fight that we're going to keep an eye on. Finally, uh, today, President Obama awarded 24 veterans the Congressional Medal of Honor, most of them 
are from the Vietnam, Korean, and World War II eras. Many of them have passed away. These were given out posthumously. The reality is, it is a national tragedy that all 24 were minorities, or I'm sorry, most of the 24 were minorities. It is a tragedy that they were not put forward because of the fact that they were minorities, and that we have come a long way in dealing with recognizing heroes rather than color. To that extent, I commend President Obama for actively going back and looking at those heroes who deserved that highest recognition that this country could offer and give it to them, posthumously or not, making them a part of our national defense history. That being said, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Kraft, Carl Tubin, our producer at Syracuse University, our great Brent Sullivan, who will be putting up more postings, you can follow us at www.backroompolitics.org and see some of the content that's going out there. Check us out daily. You'll see some good stuff. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politic, and you can also join us here live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be if you want to know what's going on in politics. Absolutely. We'll see you next week, political land. Have a great week. Bye-bye.